Good morning again, beloved. It is time for us to look together in God's Word. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 11, the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. If you're new to the Bibles, when you hear me say the chapter number, chapter 11, that's the big number on the page. And when you hear me say the first number, we'll start at verse 12 today, that's the small number on the page. So Mark chapter 11, big number, verse 12, small number. And while you're turning there, let me remind you of what's been going on in Mark's gospel. In the very first sermon in this series, Mark, uh, we were looking at the fact in Mark chapter one that Mark was teaching us that Jesus is the son of God. And, and basically what we've been saying is, well, what kind of son of God is he? And that's what Mark has been sort of showing us in different ways across these first three chapters of Mark's gospel. And one of the things that Mark wants us to understand about Jesus as the Son of God is that he is the kind of Son of God who gives his life for his people. In fact, since Mark chapter 8, in each of those chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Jesus, three different occasions, makes it really clear to his disciples that it's now time to go to Jerusalem. It's now time for him to be betrayed by his friends, to be arrested, um, by the religious leaders and the Roman officials to be crucified, killed, buried, and resurrected. That's the center of the gospel. That's the heart of the good news. That's the, the sort of climactic action in Mark's gospel, in fact, in all four gospels. And so Jesus has been journeying to Jerusalem in, in, in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. And in chapter 11, as we saw last week, he finally arrives. And last week, we were seeing him arrive into Jerusalem in fulfillment of um, the promises of the Old Testament, that he would come from the east, from the Mount of Olives, that he would come riding a donkey, um, that he would come and enter the city, and there would be all these praises of, of Hosanna, save, save. And yet the people didn't recognize who he was, not truly, not deeply. They, they haven't yet understood what kind of son of God Jesus is. Well, in our text this morning, we're going to see Jesus, the Son of God, in a different way. We're going to see him as the God-man. And in fact, we're going to see him not only as the God-man, we're going to see him as the true temple. So now Jesus is no longer going to synagogues and ministering to synagogues out in the countryside. Now he's in Jerusalem, he's in the capital, and most of the action now is taking place in the temple itself. Here he's going to have conflict with the religious leaders. And here he's going to bring judgment against the temple. And so if you're thinking about a main point for the sermon this morning, you might put it this way, that Jesus condemns false religion, but he encourages true faith. Jesus condemns false religion, but encourages true faith. And our text this morning, we're going to outline it in three parts. You might think of it as teaching us three things about false religion. That, that false religion is like a tree without fruit. We'll see that in verses 12 to 14 when Jesus curses the fig tree. And that false religion is like a temple without worshipers. We'll see that in verses 15 to 19 when Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple. Then in verses 20 and 21, down to verse 25, Jesus leaves the temple. He's going back out to, the, uh, to Bethany, a small town outside of Jerusalem. And they come back by the fig tree, and there Jesus teaches us again 
that a disciple, that, that false religion is like a disciple without faith. A disciple without faith. And Mark is using Jesus' interaction with the fig tree kind of like a sandwich. We get the fig tree, then we go into the temple, and we get the fig tree again. He's breaking up the story of the fig tree, uh, unlike the other writers, in order to insert the story about the cleansing of the temple. And that teaches us that these things hang together. The situation with the fig tree and the situation with the temple, it's like two pieces of bread, meat in the middle, teaching us about true religion and false religion. Look with me in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who sees, who is in heaven, may forgive your, forgive you your trespasses. That's Mark chapter 11, 12 to 26. The first thing we want to see is that one sign of false religion is a tree without fruit. Verse 12 opens with the phrase, on the following day. So this is the day after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with the crowd shouting Hosanna. This is after he had inspected the temple that night and gone back out to Bethany. Now he's coming in on the next day. And the verse says there that he was hungry. And that's a short sentence with a lot of meaning. Right now we're seeing Jesus in his hunger. We're seeing him in his humanity. Jesus is not just God. He is God. But he is also man. He is fully God and fully man. He has two natures. And those two natures are joined in his one person, but not mixed. That's why Christian theologians have always called him the God-man. That's why we read things like, he was hungry. It's his being fully human that allows Jesus to fully identify with us in our humanity, in our weakness. He's able to sympathize with us, even in something as ordinary as hunger. And it's probably the Lord's rumbling tummy that 
causes him to notice the fig tree. They, they probably passed that same tree on the previous day when they went in and out of Jerusalem, but, but apparently he didn't take much notice of it. But hunger improves his vision. It's like us, we're riding down the highway, we get hungry, we start seeing all the places we could stop, but the, whoever's driving, going too fast, and missing the exit, but we, we see the spots because our stomachs are telling us to look. And that's kind of what's happening with Jesus. So verses 13 and 14 says, Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this section of scripture has caused a lot of people to ask a lot of questions about Jesus. What do we, what do, we do with this strange situation where Jesus curses a tree because it doesn't have fruit, even though it's not the season for that tree to bear fruit? Some wonder why Jesus didn't know that it was not the season for figs. Some people wonder why he would use his power to destroy the tree. Some other people wonder if Jesus was actually wrong here, if he was sinful to destroy an innocent tree like this. You might be asking, is this just a classic case of somebody being hangry? Well, those are understandable questions. But, but those questions are actually missing the bigger picture. They're missing what's happening here. Let's answer those questions so we can then focus on what's really happening here. First, Jesus knew what season it was. He knew fig season from not. But fig trees are trees that produce these little fig-like buds even when it's not fully seasoned, when the buds are not actually ripened. And usually those buds are there whenever there are leaves on the tree. So Jesus is suspecting that there might actually be some early figs there, not the full ripened figs, which would be a later season. And those early figs in ancient Israel were actually something of a delicacy. So that's what he was looking for. And the tree had neither ripened fruit nor early fruit, which was in some sense a little unusual, particularly since it was in leaf. But then second, this is not a misuse of Jesus' power. This is the only miracle in the Bible where something in nature is destroyed. However, Jesus has that right. He is the Lord of creation. He has the right to dispose of the creation in any way he chooses. The tree doesn't have rights over its creator. The creator has rights over its, his tree. In the same way, you and I don't have rights over God. We are creatures. He's the creator. He has rights over us. So if Jesus' hunger shows us his humanity, his miracle here with the tree shows us his deity. His godness, if you will. He is the God-man. Now, finally, Jesus is not sinfully hangry, as some of us might say. It, it seems that way to our readings. We know how we get when we're hungry. And the fact that we see the word there, curse, and, and in our day, curse means something pretty negative. We, we think he's hangry here. No, curse here is actually another word for judgment in the Bible. Doesn't, don't think voodoo. Don't think cursing or anything of that sort. This is a judgment. He judges the tree. And really he's judging the tree 
symbolically because he's about to judge the temple. Let me, let me share a quote from one commentary that I think helps us to understand what's happening here. One writer writes, The earliest commentary on the Gospel of Mark by Victor of Antioch in the 5th century already understood the event, the curse of the fig tree, as an enacted parable in which the cursing of the fig tree symbolized the judgment to befall Jerusalem. Mark's sandwich technique, placing the cursing of the fig tree and Jesus' action in the temple in a sandwich pattern, signifies that he intends readers to see in the fate of the unfruitful fig tree the judgment of God on the unfruitful temple. That's really what's happening here. Jesus is playing out, he's acting out a kind of parable wherein God judges the false religion of a fruitless tree or a fruitless people. So more than a simple story about cursing the fig tree, this is a story about God's attitude toward Jerusalem right now, toward the temple. And that makes sense when we stop to think about it. And when we think about how often the fig tree is used as a symbol in the Old Testament for Israel, and how often the fig tree is associated with God's judgment of Israel in the Old Testament. Let me give you several examples. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, notice, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Jeremiah 29, verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like foul figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. Hosea chapter 2, verse 12. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. Hosea 9.10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Joel 1.7, it, a nation, has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It is stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Finally, Micah chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. You see, Israel is sometimes pictured as a fig tree and sometimes fruitless, barren. And sometimes Jesus, or excuse me, God in the Old Testament pictures Israel like a fig tree being stripped of fruit or cut down as a symbol of his judgment. Now to make that Old Testament connection even stronger to what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 11, think for example about Luke chapter 13, verses six to nine, where Jesus now tells a parable about this same judgment using a fig tree as an illustration. Mark, excuse me, Luke 13, verse 6. And he told this parable. 
A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. You see what Jesus is saying in this parable? God keeps sending messengers to Israel. They are the fig tree, but year after year, they produce no fruit. One day, they're going to be cut down. The fruitless tree symbolizes a fruitless people. The spoken parable of Luke 13 becomes the acted out parable of Mark chapter 11, when Jesus curses the fig tree. And all of this is fulfilling the pattern and the predictions that we saw in the Old Testament of God judging Israel for being a fruitless people. So we might sum up verses 12 to 14 this way. Bear fruit or bear the blame. Bear fruit or bear the blame. It is false religion to be a tree to claim to be a part of God's vine or vineyard, and to bear no fruit. Which brings us to the second judgment that we see in this text, the second sign of false religion, and that's the sign of a temple without worshipers. A temple without worshipers. This is what we see when we come to verses 15 to 19. Notice in verses 15 to 17, Jesus takes four strong actions when he gets inside the temple. And just sort of break these three verses down. Number one, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, verse 15. Number two, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Number three, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, that's verse 16. And number four, he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What's going on here in verses 15 to 17? Well, I think it would be helpful to give you a little bit of context on the temple. Because it says that Jesus is in the temple, and depending on what you mean, that's not quite true. The actual, what most people think of as a temple in terms of the actual temple building was made up of three sections. There was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go uh, on certain times of the year to make uh, special sacrifices. Then there is what was called the sort of Court of Israel. This was an area actually where only circumcised Jewish men could go for worship. And then there was the Court of the Women, which was for Jewish women. Now, those three sections are inside of what most people think of as the temple, and that's separated from the, an outer area by a wall. And that wall has signs posted all around it um, that, that read this, No foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that's around the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. 
So Jewish people at that time were being very strict about the fact that only Jews were allowed inside of the temple proper. And that sign was hung on the wall in Greek and Latin and Aramaic. So it didn't matter what language you spoke, you, you knew you weren't supposed to come in there. Now, outside of the temple was an area called the Court of the Gentiles. This is part of the whole temple area. It's the area about the size of five football fields, about 35 acres. And in that area was where the Gentiles, all the other people groups who were not Jews, were supposed to come for the worship of God. That's where Jesus is. He's in the court of the Gentiles. And we know that because there's, there's all this activity going on, buying and selling animals exchanging currency, exchanging money. Well, why was that happening? Well, because in that day, um, people would come to Jerusalem for Passover, about the time that we have here in the Gospels. And they would be coming from very far. And when you got to Jerusalem and you got to the temple, um, you, you came there to, to make an offering in worship to God. Now, a lot of those folks on that pilgrimage wouldn't want to bring animals that far. So they would actually come with money. And when they got to the temple, they would first have to change their money to get temple currency because you couldn't worship God with anything with an image or an inscription on it. And then you take that temple currency and you would purchase pigeons or sheep or whatever they were you were going to, um, to sacrifice that day. Uh, you would purchase it there in the court of the Gentiles. Now you see what's happening. An area that was dedicated for the gathering of the nations to worship God had been turned into a flea market. It had been turned into this bazaar where there's all these animals being bought and sold. And you know what else is happening? People are being taken advantage of. People are being exploited in this area. This industry has become big business. And it was all under the supervision of the Sanhedrin the chief priests and the scribes that we see referenced there in verse 19. Today's malls ain't got nothing on the court of the Gentiles. And it was all crooked. That's why Jesus calls it a den of thieves. They were ripping people off in various ways. Here's what one commentator says. We know from other sources that the worshipers in the Jewish temple were exploited by the merchants who charged high prices for the sacrificial animals, and the money changers, who offered unfair exchange rates. We also know that this trade was controlled by the priestly aristocracy, who profited greatly at the expense of ordinary pilgrims. And we get hints of this right from the text itself. Again, Jesus has called it a den of thieves, quoting from Jeremiah. But Mark also draws our attention, notice, to those who sold pigeons. But why pigeons when bulls and goats and rams and sheep were being sold too? Why does he draw our attention particularly to pigeons? Well, according to Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7, and Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, pigeons are the offerings of poor people who could not afford a lamb. And according to Luke chapter 2, around verse 24, it was two pigeons that were offered by Mary and Joseph when Jesus was dedicated at the temple. 
And so it might be that Jesus is actually looking at the exploitation that's going on uh, with these ethnic and cultural others and the exploitation of poor people, and, and he's getting a little hot. He's righteously indignant. John chapter 2 tells us he, he actually makes a whip. And what does he do? He drives people out of the temple. He turns over the tables. He empties out the money. Verse 16, people are trying to bring those offerings into the temple. He won't even let them go into the temple to make those offerings. He is cleansing the temple. I love what one writer says. It says, what Jesus does in the temple goes beyond a purging or corrective act, however. It attacks the very commerce upon which the temple cult depended, laying an axe at the root of the temple as an institution. The temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, when he says that. The temple was to be a, a missionary gathering point. It was to be, again, where the nations were assembled to meet and know God. But they had turned it into a den a living room, a headquarters for thieves and robbers. That part quotes Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. It was a temple, but it was without true worshipers. What about today? Do we need the robbers run out of the church today? What might capitalistic religious exploitation of the poor and the marginalized other look like today? Well, let me throw out some examples. You can tell me what you think. It could look like, for example, selling for profit religious items with no true value and no power. Oils and rags for healing, even Christian books that are light on Christian content. It, it could look like charging people to hear sermons online when the word of God is meant to be given to the world for free, preached to every creature according to the Great Commission. Or religious exploitation could look like planting churches in poor neighborhoods when you first get started, but then when you get established and you don't need poor people anymore, moving out to the suburbs for a cushier life. It, it could look like teaching people to chase the, Amer the American dream as if that's the life God approves. Or capitalistic religious exploitation of, of the poor and the marginalized could look like pastors running the church like personal businesses, like private corporations, and living in literal palaces using church offices, excuse me, church offerings. Or maybe it looks like marginalizing the Gentile others, the cultural others, the ethnic others, the ethnic minorities, whoever they are in your particular congregation. It could look like marginalizing them in worship as if they cannot come close to God. Christ has torn down the middle wall of separation, but how often do we in our church practices build it back up? Wherever we see 
things like these, we need Jesus to cleanse the church. But I wonder if we honor God enough in our hearts that we would pray for him to cleanse the church of these things. Or do we get a little nervous at the idea of that? Because if we're nervous about that, that probably implies we're guilty in some way about that. We should pray that Christ would cleanse his church. But we need to be careful here. We really do. We need to be careful here. Remembering James chapter 1, verse 20, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, there are people today who read this passage in Mark's gospel, who reads uh, of Jesus turning over tables and making whips and driving people out, and they take it upon themselves to have a whip-making, table-overturning ministry themselves. These are often angry people who, who don't understand their anger can be sinful when Jesus' anger is not. They don't understand that the, the temple and the church belong to Jesus. But it doesn't belong to them. That belong to us. We don't have the right to treat roughly the sheep that Jesus buys with his own blood. We need to be careful here. Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales, tweeted about this recently, and I, I thought it was so on point. Here was his first tweet. If table-flipping Jesus is our favorite Jesus, we've lost the plot. You see what he's saying there? If, if it's the table-flipping Jesus that, that you emphasize and idolize and, and, and maybe try to emulate, then you have lost the sort of plot, the narrative of the gospel story. A little bit later, he comes back because this happens on Twitter. Some people got upset, and so he, he added a few words. Update. Didn't think this would spark quite so much debate. Let me put it another way. When Paul said he identified with Christ, he didn't say, quote, I bought a whip, or, quote, I'm practicing table flipping. He said, quote, I died. The early church didn't choose the overturned table or the rhetorically defeated Pharisee as their symbol. They chose the cross. The cross is central, not just for Jesus, for all of us. Take up your cross and follow me. Love your enemies. That's a command by a whip, not a command. I think he's spot on. So the main takeaway is not Jesus turned over tables, so I'm going to turn over tables like Jesus. That's the way of pride and self-righteousness. We have need for the church to be holy, yes, but we also have need of the church to be humble. The main takeaway is Jesus is the unique God-man who owns the place of worship, and the worshipers, and therefore he has a right to cleanse and purge and put things in order because he has a right to decide how he will be worshipped. Only Jesus has the right to do what we see being done in this passage. And one more thing, beloved. This passage isn't ultimately about the, the temple of Herod 
in ancient Israel in the day of Jesus. This temple and this passage is ultimately about the true temple, which is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We know this because that's what Jesus teaches in John chapter 2. In this same passage where he cleanses the temple, John chapter 2 verse 18 says this, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, what authority do you have to be running people out of the court of Gentiles, turning over tables? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Ultimately, what's happening in Mark 11 is an unimaginable change in how God is to be approached and to be worshipped. He will no longer be, uh, worship will no longer happen at a stone temple with the sacrifice of animals. In fact, in a couple of chapters in Mark chapter 13, 1 and 2, Jesus will tell us that this stone temple will be torn down. And in 70 AD, it was. But the temple of his body will be killed and buried. But three days later, raised again in glory. So today, anyone who wants to worship God must come to the temple of his son, must come to Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified, buried, and resurrected in order to gather the nations as God had always intended. And the temple of Jesus' body never needs cleansing. The sacrifice of Jesus' life never needs to be repeated. He did it once for all time, for all people. And now everyone, Jew and Gentile, who believes in Jesus shall be saved from judgment. Jesus is the true temple where true worship occurs. And this is why you can't really know God unless you come to Jesus. Unless you turn from your sin in repentance, we turn away from a life lived apart from Jesus, and we turn to Jesus, putting our faith in him as our Lord and our God and our sacrifice for our sins, as the resurrected king to rule our lives. Only through that door do we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so now God calls you every person to repent of sin and to believe in this Jesus who has become for us the perfect temple, who has offered for us the perfect sacrifice, who has broken down the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and has made all of us now one new people in his body through faith. You must repent of sin and believe in Jesus if you would live with God and know his love. And his love is everlasting. And his love is ever fulfilling, ever glorious. Confess your sins and put your faith in Christ. Which brings us to our third thing, our final point. The, the third sign of false religion is a disciple without faith. A religious person without faith. 
Now, to see this, compare with me the responses of the Sanhedrin in verse 18 to the responses of the disciples in verses 20 to 25. First, look at the Sanhedrin. We're told in verse 18 that the chief priests and the scribes wanted to find a way to destroy Jesus, but they feared Jesus because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. See, their response is really the fear of man, the crowds, and a sinful fear of Jesus. Now, historically, preachers and theologians have made a distinction between sinful fear and filial fear. There is a fear of God, a fear of the Lord, that comes from sin because we love other things. And there is a fear of God, a fear of the Lord, that comes from love for God. Now, when the Bible calls us to fear the Lord, to fear God, it normally means to love God so much for who he is and for what he has done for us that we are drawn to God in joyful, willful faith, obedience, and gratitude. That's filial fear. But that's not the fear that the Sanhedrin feel. They feel a sinful fear. One writer puts this description of sinful fear very, very well for us. He writes this, This sinful fear of God is the sort of fear James tells us the demons have when they believe and shudder, James 2.19. It is the fear Moses wanted to remove from the Israelites at Sinai. It is the fear Adam had when he first sinned and hid from God, Genesis 3.10. Adam was the first one to feel this fear, and his reaction in that moment shows us its essential nature. Sinful fear drives you away from God. This is the fear of the unbeliever who hates God, who remains a rebel at heart, who fears being exposed as a sinner, and so runs from God. That's what the priests and the scribes feel, sinful fear. Rather than being drawn to Jesus in love, they run away from Jesus in hatred, in murderous hatred. Now, compare that response to the response of the disciples in verses 20 and 21. The next morning, they head back to Jerusalem. They see the fig tree that is completely withered. That's a miracle because a whole tree that was freshly alive with leaves is now from the root up, dried out, and dead. And Peter remembered Jesus' words in verse 14, how he had cursed the tree. And so now he's astonished. His, his reaction of astonishment and awe probably represents all the disciples who had heard that and saw that. He can't believe the fig tree is withered away. Now listen very closely. There's the possibility of being astonished at Jesus, but not trusting God. Remember, the crowds are astonished at his teaching, but they're not following him in masses. And here now the apostles are astonished at the withered tree. But Jesus speaks to them now a, a word of instruction, a word of correction and admonishment. Don't just be in awe of this act. Jesus says at the end of verse 22, have faith in God. 
have faith in God. The real fear of the Lord brings us to faith in God. We see him, we love him, and we trust in him. But that's what faith is. It is trusting ourselves physically and spiritually over to God, to his keeping, his protection, his guidance. And the question becomes, we'll read the end of verse 22, do you and I have faith in God? Now, we don't mean faith in faith. That's just positive thinking. We, we sometimes think about having enough faith. I've got to work up my faith, right? And, and that faith will get me this or that. No, 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 beloved. No, no, beloved. Even if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that would be enough. The faith and the quality of faith is really evaluated by the object of faith, what you put your faith in. Don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith, as verse 22 says, in God, in the omnipotent one, in the all-loving one, in the all-knowing one, in the one who has given his son to save our souls, who has proven his love in the cross and revealed his glory in the resurrection. Put your faith in him, Jesus says. And this is the thing about faith. It is the central animating reality of the Christian life, of Christian discipleship. We not only have faith in God when we repent from our sins and trust Jesus for the first time to be our Savior, we are to also go on to live by faith. That's how the just live, by faith. We understand that anything done apart from faith, as Romans 14, 23 teaches, is sin. Did you know that? Anything that we do that's not motivated by faith in God is actually sin against God. And we understand from Hebrews eleven six 6 that um, we, we must believe that God is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek after him, that, that it's impossible to please God without faith in God. Faith is the bedrock necessity of the Christian life. And that's why Jesus turns the judgment of the fig tree and turns the cleansing of the temple into this basic cornerstone message, have faith in God. That's what they lack in the temple, and that's what true disciples must have. And it goes on to teach them that, that true faith in God has at least three expressions. First of all, faith expresses itself in prayer. Did you see that? All genuine prayer must be motivated by faith in God. That's what we see in verse 23, 22 and 23. Jesus says in verse 23 that basically if you have faith, you can say to this mountain, you know, get up and go into the sea, and the mountain will do it. Well, he's speaking in hyperbole, in exaggeration to make a point. And in fact, the commentators say that that was a, a common saying among the rabbis of the first century in Jesus' day. And there might have even been something else going on here, because when you're in Jerusalem and you look out south of the city, uh, you'll see another sort of mountain peak. Actually, that peak is one of Herod the Great's uh, fortresses. 
Herod was a great architect and built up Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and built a number of fortresses for himself. This particular fortress is at the top of a mountain and he kind of destroyed the hill around the mountain, moved that, had that dirt and that hill sort of pulled away and then built sort of fortresses around the fortress. And so it could be that Jesus is, is playing on that reality. We've seen Herod use laborers to move a mountain, so to speak, or part of a mountain in order to build this fortress. I tell you that faith in God will move the whole mountain itself. And so he's making this point that when we pray, we must have faith in God, and faith in God is powerful. But notice something else. Faith also expresses itself in complete assurance. That's what we see in verse 24. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. The verb tense there is interesting. Whatever you ask in prayer, notice now, believe that you have already received it, past tense, and it will be yours. That's why I say faith is a kind of assurance. It's a kind of confidence. It expresses itself in, in, in confidence that God's going to provide for us as we pray. And the Bible is full of promises like this. And the Bible says, basically, we have not because we ask not. James says in chapter 4, same, same area, we have not because we ask not. And he said, we, sometimes we don't have because we ask to consume it upon our own lustful desires. We ask sinfully and selfishly. But the Bible says, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us and we know that we have our request. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. If we ask with faith in God, which means that we are coming to trust God and to trust God's will for us, then, then our prayers are, are meant to be in line with his will, anything we ask. We should believe we already have it and it will be done for us. Faith is a kind of assurance. Faith in God assures us of God's care, of God's attention, and of God's action on behalf of us, those of us who believe in him. So one writer puts it this way. Prayer is not simply asking God for the pleasant things which we may desire, but an earnest yearning for and entering into the will of God for ourselves and others, whether it is sweet or bitter. This was a prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane, and such prayers will always be answered by God. And finally, faith expresses itself in forgiveness. You see that in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you, your trespasses. We know by faith in Christ that God has forgiven us all of our trespasses, all of our sins against him. And so this, this verse begs us to ask ourselves the question, how can we then refuse to forgive others when God has forgiven us everything? Unforgiveness is inconsistent with true faith in God. Oh, I, I know that true Christians can be unforgiving, but it should not be that way. Un unforgiveness contradicts the forgiveness we have received. 
So true hope in God leads us to release others of their guilt so they, like us, can enjoy the freedom of forgiveness. Beloved, if we are going to be fruitful trees, true worshipers, then we must be people whose trust rests on the broad shoulders of God. We must be disciples who pray in faith and forgive in faith, for it is faith in God that marks us out as different from all the other people of the world. And so let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you walking by faith? Are you living your whole life by faith in God? Beloved, do not forget to trust God. He never fails. He never forgets. He never forsakes. He always does his will. He always keeps his promises. He is always with us even until the end of the age. Beloved, have faith in God. You, you will not be disappointed. The second question. How is your prayer life? If faith expresses itself in prayer, then atheism expresses itself in not praying. The generation that calls prayerlessness practical atheism. As Pastor John Onwichekwa writes in his book, Corporate Prayer, he says, prayer is like oxygen for the Christian. Look at that, prayer is like oxygen for the Christian. It's the, it's the air molecules that give us life. At least it certainly should, should be. Prayer is how we breathe in the life of faith. To go without prayer is like trying to hold our breath for an entire day or entire week or entire month. Can't live that way, so we should pray. And we should pray with the holy boldness that verse 24 gives us, with full assurance of faith in God. Number three, are you forgiving others? when you pray? Are you forgiving others when you pray? It's ama amazing how often we can pray for someone, <laughs> but really be praying for their punishment, for their destruction. We can pray that the Lord would, for example, humble someone. What do we have in mind there? We generally don't mean Lord, give them so much grace that they grow in humility without even noticing it. We, we, we generally mean something like, Lord, take this thing away or do this thing. Bring that person to their knees. Humble them by force. Punish them until they're lonely. That's not really forgiveness as much as it is sort of sanctified vengeance. But we are meant to Forgive as we pray, and we're meant to recognize that unforgiveness is pretty sneaky, isn't it? And so, do we, by faith, ask God for grace to actually, genuinely, from the heart, forgive others, release them of their offense against us, to release them of their debt owed to us because of that offense, and to affirm them uh, in their freedom that comes from forgiveness? 
Do we by faith treat others as if they are forgiven? Or do we say, oh, I've already forgiven them, but then we give them the cold shoulder? Notice now, verse 25, Jesus holds us accountable for forgiving others. He says that unless we forgive, then our Father in heaven will not forgive us. There will be no hypocrisy on this point. If we are forgiven, we must forgive. Are we forgiving others when we pray? And might that be the cause of our ineffectiveness in prayer? Unforgiveness. So you see where Jesus sort of moves his disciples from wandering at a fig tree to witnessing the cleansing of the temple to now lifting their eyes up to behold God and saying to them, believe in him. Take him at his word. Trust him. Rest all of your hopes, all of your desires. Put all of your plans in his hands. And when you pray to him, know that he's going to move mountains. He's going to provide what you ask according to his will. And when you pray to him, do it with a clean heart. The heart of forgiveness that you have received from Christ and now express to others. That's the true worship. That's the true religion. A life of faith in God. And that's the life that we are called into. And it's the life that we were actually made for. And it's the only life that completes us, that fulfills us, that gives us the kind of purpose that is, is, is rich and deep and substantial, not only for this life, but for the life to come as well. Jesus holds out that life and says, come into this life by faith. No one who comes into this life will ever be rejected or ever be ultimately disappointed. Come. Trust in God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for showing us what true faith looks like. We pray that you would rescue us from the withered faith of unbelief. We pray that you would rescue us from the, the fruitlessness of lives lived in our own wisdom and our own power. We pray you give us grace to put our full confidence and trust in our loving Heavenly Father who has indeed, Lord, sent you into the world to rescue us and given us his Holy Spirit. And help us to pray with the confidence that we see in the Bible when, when it says there, having given us your son, how will you not also along with him give us all things? Write Romans 8, 32 in our hearts deeply, O oh Lord. Burn it into our hearts and teach us to pray, we pray. Teach us to pray. Teach us to draw near to you. Teach us to live by faith in you. We ask this in Jesus' name.